So we're in the third week of our series called Silent Night. Two weeks ago, Pastor Lane uh, talked with us about the loss of expectation. Last week, Pastor Walt uh, talked with us about the unknown, kind of the fear of the unknown. Well, today uh, I want to talk with you um, about how to move forward. Um, as As we go into the Christmas season and we think about Christmas, it's you know, we, we bring a lot of our own experiences and, 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 and the, the stuff of Christmas with us. We bring, you know, well, you know, expectations about Christmas, memories, traditions, all of that. And so it's sometimes hard to, to kind of get into the experience of the people who were there when Jesus was born. And imagine the, the experience of the children of Israel. So, so if you'll indulge me a, a tad bit of history. The, the, the Israelites had lost everything in 597 BC. So it's been almost 600 years. They, had, they lost their temple, they lost their kingdom, they lost, the, they lost the, all the, the, the promised land, all of the promises of God seemed broken. And yet they held out hope that when the Messiah comes, that all these things will be restored to them. And, and they thought, oh well, uh, sure Babylon destroyed everything but then Babylon gets destroyed by the Persians and King Cyrus God's going to use King Cyrus and he restores it and they get to rebuild a temple but it it's not all that they'd hoped for and and they get uh, Zerubbabel oh he's in the line of David maybe he's going to be the king and then he kind of fades out of history too we don't know what happened to him or his line and then the Greeks come along, and they're in charge. The, the, the Seleucid dynasty, which is, which is brutal. I, I, I can't even tell you the things the Seleucids did to the Israelites. And then, and then it, for a little while, the Jews get rid of them and have their own kingdom, and that goes badly too. And then the Romans come along, and Romans control everything. And, and, the, and Rome seems indomitable. Rome controls the world. They have the most powerful army the Western world has ever known. How are we, we, our exile continues. We have no hope. For not only that, but for 400 years, there has been a, what Ezekiel calls a famine of the word. Ezekiel predicted that this would happen. That because of the sin of Israel, that there would be this long period of time where God would not speak. And yet, even in the midst of all of that, the people of God still held out hope that a Messiah would come. And when Messiah comes, then everything will be okay. Everything will work. False messiahs would come. People claiming, oh, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. I'm here to restore Israel's fortunes. I'm here to lead a rebellion against Rome. And false messiah after false messiah ended their journey dead on a cross. So the children of God are conquered by empire after empire, and yet they live in a hope that God will one day fulfill his promises. Paul will later write that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. So the first thing they had to do is they had to face their pain. They had to face their hurt. And, and, and that's, a, that's a difficult thing for us. Do you remember the movie Inside Out? Do you remember that movie? You know, the little girl, she's got the five emotions, and they're kind of like rooting for control over her, her kind of control board, and sat, they're afraid sadness is going gonna, is gonna to get in control, and they're always protecting sadness from, from, from bringing hurts into the conversation, and, and sadness, she just keeps trying, but eventually, because they don't let the little girl experience her sadness, 
sadness takes over. And sadness destroys everything. And if sadness had just had a chance to be sad about the move and losing her friends, then not everything would have fallen apart. There's a lesson for us in that, that we have to, we have to just experience the hurt and pain that we go through. Uh, th- there's an article uh, entitled, How to Sit with Your Feelings, Not Run from Them. The, the, the writer writes, what do you do when you're sad? Here's some, some possibilities. You text a friend about what's troubling you. You buy some takeout from your favorite Chinese place. You anxiously ruminate about what you're going to do about the bad thing. You decide to watch some Netflix. Maybe decide to go grab lunch with a friend. You catastrophize about what's wrong now, that it'll never be right again. Here's what you probably won't do. Sit back, take a deep breath, and feel in your chest how sad the sadness is. When we feel an uncomfortable emotion, our first instinct is to run away from that emotion. We buy ourselves food we like, we turn on TV shows and video games, and we try to put it out of our mind. Or maybe we vent with our friends, mistakenly believing that if we can purge, if we can get it out of our system, our negative feelings will be gone and we won't have a chance to feel the pain. Well, just like taking painkillers, these measures are great ways to manage the initial injury, But like taking painkillers, they can never solve the real problem. For many emotional injuries, this is fine. When you get a paper cut, you don't need antibiotics and an IV. It'll heal on its own. Similarly, minor emotional injuries often resolve themselves without remark. Major emotional injuries are another story. If you break a bone, you need to get that broken bone set soon, or your broken broken bone will heal in a deformed way, leaving you crippled, or it'll begin to rot and die and take you down with it. You also need painkillers indefinitely with that broken bone if it doesn't get set because that bone doesn't get set and it hurts forever. There's a lot of people in our world right now wandering around right now with psychologically broken bones that were never set. They numb their pain with sinful sex, drugs, entertainment as their hearts slowly bleed around wounds they cannot heal. So the lesson for us is to truly experience the pain we have. Because ultimately, if we don't, that will grant it more power. That will grant it power to dominate our lives, even define our lives. That's not not the path forward. We have to sit in it and own it. This has been a rough year. Here at at the school that meets here, I've lost three staff members since April. The Roe family lost a family member this year. Others of us, even this week, have lost family members. And the first thing we have to do, despite our hope, which we'll talk about, is we have to experience the emotion. In in John chapter 11, Jesus goes to his friend's house. Remember, there's there's a, a brother and two sisters. There's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Lazarus has just died, and Mary and Martha are sad. And Jesus knows that he has the power to resuscitate Lazarus, bring him back to life. And even knowing that, John 11 verse 35 tells us that Jesus wept. Even knowing the hope that he had, Jesus experienced the pain of the emotion right then and there because at that moment, his friend was dead. He gives us the example of of how to experience that. In in Matthew 5, the very beginning of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. I always read that as, well, congratulations. You, just, you mourn, but it's okay because you're going to be comforted. But now I wonder if it's not so much that you're blessed if you do the hard work of actually mourning your loss. Because that's the path to being comforted. Maybe your loss is something other than the death of a person. Maybe it's the death of a job, or the death of your finances, or the death of a relationship, or a marriage. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe it's just the death of all the things that you thought were going to happen this year that you just couldn't. I was looking forward to living in Arlington and, and, and being a lot closer to a lot of my friends and, and getting to just hang out all the time. You know, Mr. Extrovert Me, like, oh, hey, my Stephanie, I'll be over there in five minutes. We're going to hang out. But, you know, that this was what I had expected, that I don't know how long I'm going to live in Arlington, but at least a year. And that's what my life would be like. And then COVID happened, and my job is to stay home. A lot of us have experienced a lot of loss. This challenge to grieve, to, to grieve properly. Um, there was a, a pastor, a very good friend of, of Pastor Kevin's and, and also uh, Jack. His name was Kyle Lake. And, and the last sermon he was going to preach before he passed away, he said this. And, and, and it's, so, it's so good, I, w- I want to read the, the whole bit. He said, this is the, the end of his sermon. Live and live well. Breathe. Breathe in and breathe deeply. Be present. Do not be past. Do not be future. Be now. On a crystal clear, breezy, 70-degree day, roll down the windows and feel the wind against your skin. Feel the warmth of the sun. If you run, then allow those first few breaths on a cool autumn day to freeze your lungs. And do not be alarmed. Be alive. Get knee-deep in a novel and lose track of time. If you bike, pedal hard. And if you crash, then crash well. Feel the satisfaction of a job well done, a paper well written, a project thoroughly completed, a play well performed. If you must wipe the snot from your three-year-old's nose, don't be disgusted if the Kleenex doesn't catch it all, because soon they'll be wiping their own. And if you've recently experienced loss, then grieve. And grieve well. At the table with friends and family, laugh. If you're eating and laughing at the same time, then you might as well laugh until you puke. And if you eat, then smell. The aromas are not impediments to your day. Steak on the grill, coffee beans freshly ground, cookies in the oven, and taste. Taste every ounce of flavor, taste every ounce of friendship, taste every ounce of life, because it is most definitely a gift. Part of living in the present is facing the pain. And it's definitely part of moving forward. Only when we have truly experienced the pain, only when we have given it its proper seat at the table, and and that's a metaphor I, I like to use when I think about my own emotions. I have to name my emotions I have to give my emotions a seat at the table, and I have to give them their voice, because if I don't, they will take over. And if I give them a voice and I name it, I am feeling sad and anxious and a little scared. 
just the very act of naming them out loud gives them their voice, gives them their place, and then they're no longer in control. This is, this is really the challenge of midlife. Uh, Brene Brown is, is an author. She has one of the most famous TED Talks. and She, she says in, in her own way, that the universe or God or whatever in midlife puts their hands on your shoulders and says, I'm not messing around. You, you, you've got to face what you're dealing with. You have to, and you spend the rest of your life naming your emotions and saying, why am I reacting this way? You let your pain have its voice so that it can't take control. And only when we've done that, then we can do the second thing, which is just as hard, which is letting go of the past. Pastor Kevin was, was talking to me this morning, and he said, it's, it's like when you're, you're climbing a mountain, and you've got a backpack full of, of rocks, and, 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 and you're, you're climbing the mountain, and you know the only way you're going to get to the top is if you can lose all that extra weight. The past is, can be like that if we let it. In, in, in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is talking about his, his past. He's talking about, hey, I, I, had, I had all the credentials. I was Hebrew of Hebrews, you know, from the tribe of Benjamin. I, I, was, I, had, I had all the credentials. He said, but I had to leave all that behind like, like some high school letter jacket. He says, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. When we think about our past, bitterness and unforgiveness has often been described as it's like you're eating poison and expecting that other person to get sick. Our bitterness harms us, not the person that we're bitter toward. I, I had a conversation this week with my aunt who used to teach divorce care for years and years. And she said, she said um, that, okay, not, okay, not the, oh, she was talking to this lady and she said that the lady was like, if my husband would just apologize, if my husband would just tell me he's sorry, then I could forgive him. Think about what that does. It, it gives the person the, who, who she wants to forgive the power over whether or not she forgives. And my aunt said, look, you, you, don't, need, you don't need his apology to forgive him. Forgiveness is giving up the right to hurt somebody back. Humanly speaking, when somebody hurts us, we have a right to hurt them back. And forgiveness is simply giving up that right. You don't need their apology to do that. And on the, and the next day, my aunt's ex-husband called her and apologized for all the stuff he'd done. And she said, I appreciate that, but I didn't need it because I've already forgiven you. That's the power of forgiveness. That's the power of forgiveness over bitterness. That's the power of leaving the past behind. We have to let the past be what it is, but we don't have to let it define us. Because if we do, then we can't live in the now, as Kyle Lake said. And the very next thing Paul says after, after he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's looking ahead and he's looking up because that's what it takes to embrace the hope. That's what it takes to embrace the hope. Um, let me grab my Bible over here, which Shivank so graciously went and got for me, and now I don't know where it is. I think I left it in the back. That's fine. Um, can we go to that bit from Luke chapter 2? So when, when we're, now that we're into this story, let's, we, we're, 
at, at, at the Christmas story, um, we're, we're in the moment where the people of God have experienced this deepest loss, right? Sure. Is, that's okay. I can get to it. Thank you. And so we get to, and, and so as if we didn't need to be reminded that Rome is in charge, we see here in Luke chapter 2, the introduction, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there together to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave born to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. We can't get to Christmas without reading the Christmas story. When we talk about embracing the hope, I'm reminded of what follows next in this story. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, they named him Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, about six weeks, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer the sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting, listen to this, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom required, Simeon took the baby in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts and of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. 
Simeon has lived his whole life in the shadow of Roman control. He's lived his whole life knowing that the, the temple is corrupt. He's lived his whole life knowing that Israel still lives in exile, and he knows that it's going to be almost his whole life that he's going to have to live that way. But the Spirit promises him, you will see the salvation of the Lord. And he doesn't just see the salvation of the Lord, he holds that salvation in his arms. Nothing can fill your arms like a baby. There was also a prophetess, Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage. And then was, and there was a widow, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, after Simeon speaks, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by law, of the law of the Lord, they returned to their own town of Nazareth. Simeon and Anna are our examples of hope. Simeon and Anna help us to embrace the hope that God offers us. Because Simeon and Anna lived their entire lives never seeing the promise of God fulfilled until the very end. And even then, they only see the opening scene of the drama of God's redemption. They were, they were praying for the redemption of Israel and the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Luke is very careful to show us that, that testimony about Jesus is always a man and a woman. You'll see this with Priscilla and Aquila later he, because Luke is showing us that, that testimony about Jesus, that bearing witness to what Jesus has done for all humanity is not a job for one gender alone. They're always together in the Gospel of Luke all the way through the book of Acts. Simeon and Anna show us the hope that we have. Simeon and Anna exemplify the hope that we are to embrace because it is it is a perennial challenge for us as believers. We look at the world around us and we, and we know that it's not as it should be. We, 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 see, we see the wicked prosper, we see the righteous suffer, and we think, is God really in control? It, it's so easy to, to keep our eyes down on the day-to-day, to watch the news and see the turmoil and the strife and the conflict, and, and to think that as if God's purposes depend on the success of a particular nation, much less a particular political party. We have to lift our gaze and remember that this is not all there is. And remember that in our darkest moments, when, when, when the world seems broken and, and, our, and our hopes are lost and, and, our, and our dreams are dashed, we have to trust that it's not ultimately all the stuff around us that is our hope. Jürgen Moltmann, the, the great German theologian, he talked about how the end, the end of all things, because God has assured that the end is coming, that that affects the present. It actually transforms the reality of the present. In, in much the same way, when, when I tell my kids, hey, we, we can go get ice cream on Sunday, it, it, it's not that it, it, has, it has already happened, but I have the power to make it happen. I have the power to buy the ice cream and feed it to them. In the same way, God says, I will redeem all things. I will make all things right. I will bring the, the new Jerusalem down out of heaven. I will do all these things. And because God has the power to do it, it is assured. 
And because of the assurance that we have that God has the power and the intention to fulfill God's promises, we can live with a completely different perspective on the here and now. We can see all of our pain, experience it for what it is, but not let it control us because ultimately all that we have here and now, if any of it is bad, if any of it is painful, it ultimately has no power. Because in the end, God will fulfill all of God's promises. He began to do it in the incarnation by sending Jesus to earth so that, so that this, this great separation between the reality of heaven and the reality of earth now are, are touching each other in a person who is both fully God and fully man. It's not just that, that godness and humanity came together. Heaven and earth came together. It was the first deposit of, of the blending of heaven and earth. And then when the spirit came, it, the, the, the word deposit is a word that, that Paul uses. It's like a down payment. The spirit comes and lives, it lives in us. Now, the reality of heaven and the reality of earth are all the more combined. Because you and I are walking around as living, breathing, dual citizens. Because God lives in us. And yet we know that there is a, an even f- further fulfillment. When, when, when John sees the vision, I, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God like a bride beautifully adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne that said, Behold, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then, a few verses later, what does it say? I will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more crying or mourning or tears or pain. That is the hope that redeems our pain, names it. If our pain was nothing, we would would have no, no need for hope. But because it's real, and because God has an incredible power over it, not not only does he have a power to ultimately take us away from the pain, but in the midst of our pain, same theologian, Jürgen Moltmann says, that in the midst of our pain, we know that there is a suffering God suffering with us. We do not have a high priest who doesn't understand what we've gone through. He's gone through all the same pain that we have. Any pain we, we have, you, you can tie it to some, some pain that Jesus experienced in the crucifixion. In the midst of our pain, we have a suffering God suffering with us. And in the end, there will be no more suffering. That is our hope. It validates our suffering now, but it, and it gives us a perspective beyond our suffering now to know that the God who made us is the God who will save us.